So we cannot really have uh, an operational excellence uh, in shipping forum without tackling the topic uh, of decarbonization. Um, Nicholas Bornos of Capital Link, I would like to welcome you to this very important panel that uh, actually the topic that we chose is to focus on the shorter and uh, I would say medium term. How do you adapt fleet operations to meet the regulatory requirements? Uh, so uh, we have a great uh, group of panelists. I will uh, let uh, Mark Darley from, from Lloyd's Register uh, do the introductions, but I would like to Thank you all for being with us and uh, for your great contribution to making this uh, forum and the session uh, a success. So, Mark, the floor is yours. You can introduce a panelist and, and thanks for me. Yeah, thanks, Nicholas. Um, my name is Mark Darley. Good day, everybody. Um, and I'm the director for Lloyd's Register's marine and offshore business. It really is a pleasure here to be moderating this panel today, but equally, I'm really pleased, as Nicholas says, to be joined by such a, an illustrious panel as well as the global uh, attendees on the panel that we have with you today. So just to run through who we have joining me today, I'm starting with Ralph Jewell. Uh, Ralph is the Executive Vice President Technical uh, for Hafnia. Uh, we're then also joined from Pacific Basin by Harshbad Bave, uh, who's the Fleet Director. Um, also on the panel today is Ali Sterling. Now, Ali is the co-founder and president of Marsoft. Uh, joining us from Sea Energy Maritime Holdings, uh, we have Stavros uh, Gif Giftakis. Um, and finally, but last but certainly by no means least, uh, we're joined by Marco uh, Fiori, who's the CEO of Bermuda SPA. Um, so just to... Um, sort of ground the session as uh, before we get into the in, into the panel questions and as ever you know we're more than happy to take questions through the chat uh, that might come from the audience as we as we discuss over the next 40 45 minutes or so but um just to ground the session um now as nicholas highlighted but as we all know as an industry and from a regulatory perspective led really by the IMO's 2030 and 2050 targets, we as an industry are faced with a decarbonization that has laid out the goalposts, I think it's fair to say, for a transition pathway. But really where we are now is trying to understand what happens between those goalposts in terms of how ships comply technically um, or the, the fuel by which they, they, they run in future but indeed the broader considerations and discussion around the commercial or societal impacts during that transition as we aim to achieve uh, what the IMO has, has put in the ground in terms of an industry pathway and industry goalposts. Now from a regulatory perspective and, and what really we'll be centering on today are the, the impacts of what has already been defined. And, and those are two things really, those are the index um, for energy efficiency in the existing ships, so the EEXI, as many of you will know, but also then really the Operational Carbon Intensity Index, or the, or the CII. Now, as we all know, the, the EEXI for existing ships really has been put in play uh, to require existing ships to uh, effectively <clears throat> technically catch up to their equivalent uh, EDI compliance ships or the newer ships that we have within the global fleet. Then the compliance with the EEXI really means that a ship can continue to internationally trade. 
Now, depending on where a ship is in its survey cycle at the moment, the compliance deadline could already be less than 18 months away. So that's EXI very much at the center uh, of the panel and the broader industry's minds at the moment. Now for ship owners with pre-EDI or early EDI certified tonnage, the EEXI um, index can mean quite a substantial amount of work. And we'll hear from the panelists today about how they're managing that substantial level of work. But really for the majority of the EEXI uh, impacts onto the fleet, certainly on day one, won't have a huge significant impact on the operation of the vessels in terms of how vessels are actually being run today. Um, even with the tweaks that the IMO has made ahead of its meeting that actually starts tomorrow, uh, when we expect that uh, th those tweaks and, and, and the broader regulation will be adopted to meet the requirement. So the way that many of us uh, see EEXI is really the ticket to the game. Um, but the real game in town in terms of how do we achieve 2030 and 2050 requirements <clears throat> is then when we move into the um, operational carbon intensity or the CII. Now, CII will apply to most of the global fleet above 500 GT and is the main mechanism, as I say, for achieving certainly those 2030 targets. Ships will need to technically adapt and operationally meet specified annual carbon intensity reduction targets from 2023 and then being rated on a continual uh, performance basis. Now, the most recent installment of negotiations at the intersessional um, IMO session a few weeks ago, late in May, uh, saw some compromise uh, around what that annual criteria might be. And it was built around an 11% reduction in the annual efficiency review or the, or the AER at a fleet level relative to, uh, to 2019. With the door open to push even harder um, further down the line and particularly from 2026 and 2030, um, but clearly that is still very much open for discussion. Um, so a lot of eyes looking uh, at what is happening this week and, and, and next at, the, at those IMO meetings. So there really is that sort of growing expectation that at the IMO, uh, we could see more pressure being piled onto the industry by raising that bar between 2026 and 2030. At the same time as the enforcement regimes transitioning from light touch, uh, I think it's fair to say, to materially starting to penalize underperformance and underperforming ships. Now, today, really, uh, ahead of that session, it's difficult to assess the impact, but uh, in, intuitively, the, the drive to push adoption will impose a new constraint on commercial operations. And that's why it's, been, it's great to be joined by uh, the colleagues that we have on the panel today. The impact of the regulation clearly will vary from sector to sector. Uh, and we'll hear today from a broad range of, of, of leading owners and operators to understand a bit more about how uh, what they can see coming down the line is going to affect them and their particular fleets and their operations. So with that being said, perhaps I'd like to start then, Ralph, with yourself and, and, and Hafnir. Um, one of the questions that remains unanswered is when we talk about those AERs is how the market will respond to the ratings of the ships, whether you're rated as an A, B, C, or even down at a rating D. 
based on the carbon intensity reduction performance. Now, it, yourselves and your company as, as an operator and charter of ships in both spot markets and orient, orientated pools, um, do you see these ratings having a role in pools and then the wider market um, when ships are first assigned in 2024? How do you see it, Ralph? Thank you, Mark. Uh, very relevant question. Um, and for some sectors in shipping, it this is a new thing. <clears throat> but for, for tankers, this being rated is not a new thing. Uh, the oil majors, our biggest customers, have for many, many years rated us uh, to flag, to class, to performance, uh, to various uh, factors, uh, put our ships into ranks and use them and utilize them uh, as such. So for us, another rating is just another thing that we have to deal with. But <clears throat> from an um, industry perspective, I think that we have to remember that carbon reduction is uh, serving a bigger purpose. Uh, and how do you drive a change through an industry in a fair manner? I think that is uh, very, very difficult. Um, and obviously, we need to get the, the polluting ships, the most polluting ships uh, shifted out with cleaner ships. That is the whole purpose of this. So if a rating system, system can secure an industry where we can use uh, good ships and we can measure where the good ships are, um, then, then, then I think that is just a, a fair way of, uh, of of uh, driving the carbon reduction uh, policies uh, through the world. Um, in a good market, it doesn't matter. There is room for everybody. Uh, that uh, is a customer driven thing. Uh, if there is a demand from the end users, uh, then ship will sail. And in a bad market, we will ships, uh, ship owners with poor ships will have to consider what to do to get them back into the market. And I think this is a this is a, a good and fair driver. Yeah, good. Thanks, Ralph. So, so what I'm hearing is not necessarily scared of of a new rating system. Clearly, as you say, in tanker markets, you're used to ratings, but a rating system that has to be fair and has to achieve the the, the goals ultimately. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It it it's it's the way. How do you how do you make it fair and uh, how do you measure it and will it be different from uh, sailing in Africa from Europe or US to Asia? Uh, this is the difficulty. But but I think we we can overcome that as an industry. Good. Thanks. Thanks, Ralph. Um, so uh, turning to you now uh, now Harsh at PB um, with your operations at PB Pacific Basin focused on bulk trades with significant opportunities, I think it's fair to say, for efficiency and productivity from triangulation. Um, one of the concerns, as we know, of the IMO's reliance on the annual efficiency ratio, so the AER for bulkers specifically, is that that trade may be disadvantaged to owners and operators using the, the smaller tonnage, as, as Ralph also alluded to, but also tonnage that's on trades with high frequency port calls and, and lower instances of, of ballast legs. Have, have you got any views on that as, a, as an owner-operator at Pacific Basin of bulk trades? Yeah, thanks, Mark, uh, uh, for, for asking that, because we don't really think that the AER is the right metric to use for uh, our, our for bulk carrier operations. Uh, 
it's it's well intentioned and it's probably expedient it's easy to roll out but uh, in some ways it it rewards inefficiency and in the long run it might even lead to an increase in carbon emissions rather than uh, a reduction for instance we have a large fleet of uh, modern uh, japanese relatively uh, efficient uh, bulk carriers and we have a large network of uh, cargo uh, so that we are able to plan our operations and our ships are loaded 90% of the time however uh, the the aer metric does not recognize the difference between uh, loaded productive loaded passengers and empty ballast unproductive passengers so our ships even though loaded most of the time will be held at the same level as ships which are not loaded so 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 frequently or or most of the time secondly what will happen is in theory it is believed that since ships are competing for at their same levels as ships uh, as the targets get tighter and tighter ships will start slowing down and at some point the more inefficient ship will not be able to trade any more commercially and that will have to be phased out however in practice what might happen is that with the with the slowing down taking supply out of the market uh, for those inefficient ships they might still be viable loading half the cargo so if a ship loads half the cargo that the, the shortfall will have to be carried by more ships and that will actually increase the fuel consumption instead of reducing it so we don't think actually that aer will will be useful to achieve the target that we want to achieve here on the other hand uh, charters through uh, initiatives like sea cargo charter they are using eoi which actually considers the actual cargo carried and we believe that is a better metric to achieve the carbon reductions that we want to achieve yeah th thanks i so so much more in favor of a, a of a cargo volumetric matrix metric as you say um uh, like sea cargo are proposing other than the other than the aer metrics can, can, can i just ask then i assume then on that that you're going to voluntary record both metrics are you because that, that has always been one of the imo's arguments that they need to collect the data to be able to adopt different metrics outside of the aer can, can i just ask a sort of a related question to that then harsh we have been uh, monitoring our eoi for the last almost for for the past decade actually aer has come in recently so now we are tracking the aer as well but eoi we've been tracking and declaring in our csr reports regularly okay good good so already proactively getting the data to be able to propose an alternative great great um well th thanks hash um so coming now to you ali if if i may um so you, you and your company, Ali, you're doing a lot of work with your clients to help mitigate the risks associated with the investment that's needed in decarbonization and, and the related technologies. Uh, and uh, as I've already said, you know, the operational carbon intensity index uh, drives a, a reduction uh, and could be, well, it's seen as a sort of constraint in certain quarters for the commercial operations from 2023. Now, with many in the industry highlighting that there are currently no zero emission options, uh, you know, at a scalable level available fully today. Um, what steps are you seeing owners now taking to reduce emissions and, and, and address that challenge? And, and you know, how, how does your company, Marsoft, help them with that? Thanks very much, uh, Mark. Uh, these are. Uh... These are trying times for the industry, uh, and at the same time, they're very exciting as, as the decarbonization is growing uh, as an important theme. Um, 
our clients are taking steps now to reduce emissions and they are uh, working to, to make sure that they make money at the same time they do that. And that's really the huge challenge uh, for the industry now as it looks to decarbonization because decarbonization investments are not traditionally seen as money makers. Uh, and, and so what we work with our clients to do is to identify the opportunities to make money with the retrofit investments. And, and retrofitting, by the way, is the only practical step to take now to improve the efficiency of your ships. The technology is advancing rapidly, costs are coming down, so there are more opportunities available. And, and those and evaluating those opportunities or is a complex process. That's why we've taken a three-step approach to helping our clients uh, managing the, manage the path to uh, decarbonization. One is we help identify what is the retrofit investment or the best risk return uh, profile. Second, we help monetize the valuable uh, reduction in carbon emissions that our clients are generating by those retrofit investments. And third, we're working to ensure that their banks understand the value of those investments and the consequences in terms of increased earnings potential and value for their ships. And therefore, the banks can provide that, that uh, critical funding support for the, uh, for the investments. One of the things that's been very important for us as we've approached the decarbonization challenge is to team with the right people. Teaming for success is, is so uh, critical. Uh, it, the word collaboration appears uh, more and more in shipping, but really it's teaming. Uh, and, and so we've reached out, uh, kind of gone back to school in some sense, gone back to MIT and, and working with the uh, MIT Sea Grant Design Lab. We've, we've helped develop systems that can rate alternative retrofitting combinations uh, their, their impact on, on specific ships and on a fleet-wide basis to help make that scientifically-based decision on what is the right uh, retrofit combination. We're collaborating with the gold standard, uh, one of the world's preeminent organizations in uh, the credit trading world, to make sure that the emissions reductions in shipping meet the highest standards uh, set by the carbon uh, for carbon trading and therefore earn the greatest value in those markets. And finally, we're working with the Poseidon Principles Banks and, and all the others that are, are providing funding to make sure that those investments translate quantitatively into earnings and value improvement that they can see in terms of debt capacity. So we've really taken, as I say, the, the, the show me the money is the story that every ship owner uh, has when they uh, consider these retrofit investments. And we've taken, uh, uh, the, the critical steps, three critical steps along that path to help the owners uh, find the money at the end of the uh, decarbonization path. Yeah, thank, thanks, Ali. Thanks. Um, yeah, so as, as you said, I think the difference this time with this regulation is, is clearly, um, you know, actually the, the, the technical solution arguably is the easiest bit. It's more about the commercial and societal implications and, and impact as you go through that transition pathway and like you say work with with owners in terms of assessing those options against those against those three criteria um I, I do like the word teaming you know collaboration in the last nine months has been the word that the industry has used but I, you know i think it also it's also a nod and a recognition that to address this i think for arguably the first time you know we we need to work 
uh, harder and, and, and more together as an industry because no one group or one organization ha has has a solution to some of these challenges. We need to work together to solve uh, what we have ahead of us. Exactly, Mark. Yeah, uh, thanks, Ali. Thanks. Um, okay, now just uh, turning then to, to Stavros uh, and Sea Energy. Stavros, if I can. Um, so shipping is often cited as an industry where, you know, nobody takes action unless a regulation is introduced. Wait till the 31st of December of whatever year it is and then try and figure out what, you, what you're going to do. Uh, do. Do you think that this perception is valid? And, and do you think that the demands of the regulations and the regulators, i.e. the IMO, have been overtaken, if you like, by the demands of investors and customers that, that Ali was talking about there? And do you think this means then that the regulators actually need to go back and, and, and need to do more to ensure that there's a, a level playing field going forward? Stavros. Mark, thanks. And thanks very much to Nicholas and Capital Link for hosting our panel. Now, going to your question, no, no, I don't necessarily agree with the perception that uh, shipping is reactive rather than proactive. Uh, we are operating in a capital intensive industry and therefore, being proactive comes at the cost. And, and, and I think that things can get especially tricky when there is no visibility as to exactly what and when will be required. Adding to that, I mean, we come uh, from, from challenging markets over the last uh, five to 10 years. In addition, huge investment capex uh, were expended in, in, in 2020 to, to meet the IMO 2020 uh, targets. So, and, and when it comes to big investment, shipping has rarely rewarded first movers. Nonetheless, the industry is gradually responding to, to the call for, for improvement of the efficiency of the global fleet and is preparing accordingly for the transition. But it's not simple, it's not gonna be cheap. Now, focusing especially on the bulkier sector, since Synergy uh, that I represent in this panel is the only US publicly listed pure play cape size company. Now, the perception that, that bulkers are, are slow in adopting to change, I think that it has probably to do with the size of the global market, bulker fleet and, 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 and our diverse trading patterns. However, still progress is being made in, in the uptake of greener technology, as Arlie said before, such as energy saving device installations, and also comparable progress to other sectors is, is, is also uh, being marked. Now, going to your second point, I, I think that when it comes to environmental issues, the regulators are aligned with the asks of, of the investor community, but regulators are closer to the industry than investors, and, and therefore they are better able to determine the time frame and the depth of any new regulations and the impact of, of, of its implementation. So overall, I do think that the agenda promoted by the IMO and the regulators nowadays is basically what investors are ultimately looking for when investing both from, from a social responsibility perspective as well as from an economic perspective. And, and, and in the end, it is companies that, that will enjoy investor support are the ones that have a clearly defined environmental and overall ESG agenda, and, and, and most importantly, that are able to consistently execute on this agenda in a smart and cost-efficient way and with a clear and quantified economic benefit for, for them and their investors. So 
regulators are responding to the demands of the investors in a way that observes also the timing and the feasibility sensitivities of, of our sector. Thanks, Stavros. So, so I'm hearing a very resounding, yes, you, you think we are doing enough. Um, the conversations are accelerating and, you know, that... We're that... making progress, we're preparing, so, I mean, we're, we're on the right steps. Good, good. Okay, th thanks, Stavros. Um, Okay, turning to you now, Marco uh, and Bermuda. So, um, as we know, and as we've seen from the data already released by the IMO, many ships in the major segments, including the tankers and the bulkers, are operating with with average main loads of somewhere between forty and sixty percent, according to the data that's that we've we've all seen. Now, as an owner and operator of wet and dry tonnage, do you think will further reductions in speed be possible? And how do you expect to respond to the requirements to reduce carbon intensity of the ships that you own and operate, uh, Marco? Over to you. Hi, Mark. Thank you very much. Look, I think that the, I was listening to all the, the, the brilliant comments of, uh, of all the speakers of this panel. I think uh, I would tend to agree with Stavros that uh, everybody ac uh, accuses shipping of being very uh, non-reactive. But I think... Uh, Sometimes it seems also that way because the regulations are not very clear and then, then everything comes down to the last minute that everything falls together. So there is, a think, also a necessity of having very clear regulation. On your question of uh, the, the world, the load, for sure, the best and uh, the first thing that comes to everybody's mind is to slow speed or have the rating of engines. But there is a limit to what you can do. So, you know, uh, you can go up to a certain limit. After that, I think the inevitable, uh, the inevitable question you're asking yourself is going to be, let's all try to be a, do a transformation of the fleet into more efficient ships. But for doing so, there has to be very much clarity on certain points. First of all, point number one is the technology. Still today, we don't have a very clear idea of what's going to be the technology that's going to be applied the best. And second of all is how fast can we do it? Because unfortunately here we are all talking about applying certain regulation to shipping. But from one day to another, you cannot scrap all the ships that are existing because unfortunately or fortunately for us, the world still needs the existing ships in order to uh, distribute the goods all over the world. So I think there are these two points that, uh, that are very important to keep in, uh, in mind. The third point, which is very important in my, in my opinion, is that the rating can be done, probably slowing speeds can still be achieved. As you're well aware, we are not starting from a period of very high speeds. We're already being slow steaming for a certain period of time. So we're talking about marginal reductions that are possible. The question here is also how you're going to distribute all these changes are going to be who in the value chain is going to be taking responsibility for the added cost because there's going to be cost in all of this so who's going to pay for what you know uh, the, the the charters would want the owners to pay the owners would want the charters and the charters and the owners are all agreeing to have the, the final consumer pay for this but i think there has to be some kind of spreading the pain of all of this in order to move forward and this has to be also very clear the world of yesterday will not be the same of the world of tomorrow so we'll see slow steaming marginally but we'll also see also different distribution 
with some impacts in the life of all of us, uh, because then we're also final consumers of goods. There's going to be some added costs that have to be naturally shifted into the final consumer. So this has to be very clear. Nobody can take full accountability and cost of all this process, because that would be totally unfair. <coughs> and in the end, it wouldn't work, because it would make unviable or unprofitable business, which the world needs. So this is the last solution that we all, uh, that we all need and we want to do. So I think these are a little bit the big questions that we have to ask ourselves. Then how are we going to do it? I think it's not going to be very difficult. I think technology is moving very fast. We'll have great system in the future. We talk more and more, and more about synthetic fuels, which probably would be a good solution for all of this. <coughs> but the main question is, who's going to take the charge of this has to be very clear regulation and also very clear who's going to take, who's going to take cost of which part of the cost is going to be taken. These are second the big questions that we're going to be facing going forward. Yeah, thank, thanks, Marco. Uh, I couldn't agree more. You know, this isn't this isn't about technology. This isn't about uh, about capex. This is about opex, and by opex we mean okay, who's going to take the money? Where's the money going to come from, and where's the money going to be redistributed to? Certainly, when you look at you know the fuels debate and the fuels conversation, uh, clearly in the future, maritime as a, as an industry isn't going to have its own unique fuel. We're going to be competing with other industries, be it the automotive industry, the land-based industries. And that completely changes the dynamics of how we've op how we've built up our opexes um, over the over the past years. So so yeah, couldn't agree with you more there, Marco. Um, so okay, we've heard from all the panel members now, and and I just want to sort of turn my attention to again how specific organisations are, are dealing with the regulations and, and maybe more the immediate regulations. And and Harsh, you already mentioned some of the work that you've been doing over the last ten years, but. Can we get a bit of a, a, a sort of an update from you, how you're responding to the challenges that we're discussing today and the, and the need to reduce carbon intensity by 2030? Yeah, uh, well, we have been approaching uh, this uh, challenge in uh, various ways. Uh, the first of which, of course, is, is uh, the ship itself. We have been adopting fuel saving additions. Uh, we have increased the deadweight tonnage of ships where we could. Uh, we uh, then operationally, as I said, we improved our. We have a very high loaded laden ratio, so that our ships are utilized most, of which improves our EEOI. Uh, then we have been undertaking a renewal program of our for our fleet, where our old and inefficient tonnage is being phased out, and we are buying uh, newer, more modern, and fuel efficient uh, ships. At the same time, because of the uncertainties in the regulations, we are not embarking on a new building program. And we are not, uh, because we have to wait and see what new technologies develop, which can meet the long-term targets of the IMO. So we are waiting to see that in order before we uh, think about buying new ships. Uh, so that's basically what we are doing. In the meanwhile, we are also, of course, following the regulations. We are checking where we stand, what our AER uh, would, be, would look like, what might need to be done, what speeds we would have to run at, and so on and so forth. So that's that's what we're doing. So so so, so lots happening. I'd imagine it's a similar story at Hafnia, Ralph. If if we turn to yourself. Uh, yes, pretty much. Um, we have spent. I I think that. Uh, now we are calling it uh, carbon reduction, but I think we all started uh, many years ago doing a fuel optimization. Uh, 
maybe for another purpose, but that was indirectly a, a carbon reduction uh, coming with it. So I think many of us have been working on bus cap fins, newest ducts, new paint system, etc., for a long, long time. So it's, so it's not new for us to use the existing technologies or to develop or investigate uh, or be innovative, uh, innovative around various means that could reduce the fuels and thus the, uh, the carbon intensity. I think that but we are still talking about the lower level of, uh, of uh, reduction. We are still talking about a muse dot could give you 5%. Another uh, paint system can give you 5%, 7%. You, you can have 5 7%, 10% here and there and everywhere. But it's not that you suddenly have 140%. So uh, it all equalizes. So I think we have a huge experience over a long time to do these things. So we have actually use tremendous time of analyzing the ship's traits. See, what are the uh, artificial in intelligence, uh, monitoring of systems, uh, uh, digitalization, uh, and used all this to assist the ships uh, and the operators and the charterers in operating the vessels uh, uh, in a better and more efficient way. And that has actually given us great advantages because the ship have sort of a limit. Its EEDI limit is theoretically the limit you have for a ship in full operation. So when you come to that, you need modifications to do changes. And then you are talking uh, some total different costs, uh, three, four, five million. Then you have a payback time, which is uh, very severe. And then you start to uh, compete with your own ships and other ships in a very wrongful way. So, uh, so we have spent a tremendous load of time in establishing where are we and what do we need to do with our fleet. And we have a very clear picture of our 90 ships, what we have to do with them to sort of cope with the first step 2030. Yeah, very good and, and hugely valuable. As, as you rightly said there, say there, Ralph, you know, whether it's muse ducks or changing bulbous bows or, or, the, or the more sort of, so I say, nascent technology like flattener rotors or air lubrication, it's important to remember that it's, it's ship specific and it's trade specific. So the fact that you've got that data for your 90 ships and your fleet, you know, it's fantastic to be able to, for you to make a, a, a real difference in, in, in whichever option you, you then choose from a technology perspective. So thanks, Ralph. Um, and, and, then, and then finally, I guess on this one, Stavros, turning to, to yourselves and, and, and the work that you and the team have, have done there. I think it's, it's pretty similar to basically what, what Ralph said before. I mean, we have been pursuing ways to improve the energy efficiency of the fleet for some time now. It's not something new in shipping. Uh, and, and we do believe that what Marcos mentioned, that at this stage of the transition, the impact of the existing ships is, is far more important than how the ship or the engine of tomorrow will look. Uh, so since 2016, we have installed on all our vessels advanced monitoring systems, collecting data on a real-time basis, uh, which we process through artificial intelligence platforms. We have seen immediate benefit from that uh, in, in reducing by 2 to 3%, I mean, the average fuel consumption through weather route planning and, and voyage optimization. And, and, and more recently, I mean, we have been performing EPL projects in cooperation with MAN, RightShip, and, and in some cases also with some of our charterers. Uh, so what we're doing is we, we're be building and optimizing the operational profile of our, of our fleet. Uh, and in some cases, together with our charters, preparing uh, for what is coming. Uh, 
we, we have indeed also completed the XI assessment for our fleet. We're strategizing internally and again with our charters on optimal ways to address the upcoming regulations. And we are trying in most cases to do so without having necessarily to compromise the operating speed of the fleet. So by implementing other technical and operational measures, uh, for us, a combination of EPL and ESD installation seems to be the way right now to address the EXI requirement. And uh, once we are there on EXI, we don't foresee any issues with, uh, with the CII of our ships. Yeah. Okay, good. Thanks, Stavros. Um, you know, if I can add something, yeah. Uh, Look, I totally agree with what Harsh was saying about fleet renewal. That's the most logical thing to go ahead. The second thing is fuel optimization that uh, Ralph was talking about. I, I totally also agree on that. But, you know, you have to keep in mind that he was talking about 5% here, 10% there. At the end of the day, it's a curve really of diminishing returns. The more you want to, 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 uh, to go down that road, the more difficult it gets to get to the zero, which is the final goal. You know, you can go up to a certain point. So if we don't have the technology to change all of this, we can always find the second best solutions. But the real change is going to be from new technology, because then you go up to a, a, this curve of diminishing returns. And at the end, the last 10%, 20% will be unachievable unless you turn everything off and you start uh, putting a sail or start rowing, you know, because the, I mean, with today's technology, zero, it is very difficult. So I think what we need, and I'm very confident it will come, has to be really a big technological breakthrough in the, in the, in the, in the industry. Because otherwise, it will be very difficult to get to the goals. And I think sometimes giving ourselves a, a very ambitious uh, uh, game post, it is a good thing because it stimulates very much the discussion and stimulates also the need of finding these new technologies. But I think that will pass through a lot of technology implementation. Yeah, exactly. And just to build on what you said before as well, Marco, it's technology, but then it's also when we get into the real game of future fuels as well um to, to to ultimately achieve 2030 and 2050 but that's about building out that that network that supply chain you know we've been through the lng chicken and egg stories that we that we all know of uh, that's about building that network that's going to support a maritime industry from a fuel perspective um as, as well mark i, I want to jump in uh, because frankly i i think that these incremental steps that we take now the five percent the ten percent they make a huge difference right now and, 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 I, and we, we can't overlook that we the 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 contribute the, the carbon we take out of the our our emissions right now is going to pay us back over many years when we don't have to take that out in the future so we can't overlook this but we have to make sure we're finding ways to monetize the value of that carbon saving either through the increased earnings and support from the charters or looking to new markets like the carbon credits market, uh, uh, or investing in new technology. And certainly I've, I've seen more ship owners invest in hydrogen recently than I ever expected to. Uh, we're all collaborating uh, on the new technology front. But the steps we take now make a big difference. Uh, they make the- No, uh, no I, 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 I didn't want to say they don't, uh, they're not important. I'm just saying that, you know, 
the, a thousand miles march starts with the first step. So unless we take the first step, we'll never start there. But I'm saying to the final goal, there's going to be a lot of small steps, but then we'll be kept where achieving that extra 1% will be much more difficult than it was today. At a certain point, because you, you have these kind of diminishing returns of what you're doing on, uh, on the output. So, so, so Ali, just picking up and actually going to one of the questions that we've got um, from the audience there on, on commercial incentives and, 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 you know, differentiating within a fleet of 10,000 vessels. Uh, maybe one for you or maybe other members of the panel. Uh, somebody's asking here, at what point do the panel members feel the high ratings, so the A to E, if, if you had a, a, a D or an E, will become a requirement for charters? Or to ask it another way, at what point do panel members think lower ratings will start to cost shipping companies significant business, regardless of what cargo rates they offer? I don't know who would like to start us on that one. You want a very simple answer, at least on my side, depends what kind of market you are. If you're in a very high market, charters are much more willing to compromise on these ratings than in a very low market. So, you know, I think if you're a very expensive market, also poorly rated ships will find their employment. So I think it's very much correlated to that. So that's why you need also charters discipline. Anyone want to build on that? In, in, in the Cape size market, I mean, which, which is, I would say it's, it's, it's different to the overall Balkan market because it's, it's a more closed club of charters. I mean, you have more, more, more blue chip names. It, it resembles a bit the, 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 the time care chartering market in, in a sense. We already see the requirement for certain efficiency rating in our charter parties, especially the longer term ones. I mean, it's not so strict as to restrict you between A and C also, but I mean, you already see a requirement for a minimum of E uh, rating. So it's it's already there. I mean, and it's non-negotiable. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, just, just conscious of time, just a very sort of quick fire question then for the panel. Um, as I said in my introduction, MEPC kicks off tomorrow. Um, so this conversation certainly is, is timely, but if I could ask a couple of you maybe, if you could ask the regulatory decision makers one question about operational carbon intensity reduction requirements, what would it be? Maybe, Ralph, I'll come to you first. Uh, yes. Uh, <clears throat> first of all, I would say that I have the deepest respect for the guys in IMO doing the legislation. I actually think they do a, a pretty good job under very difficult circumstances. So I'm not here to try to, to out-clever them. Uh, but if they had the time uh, to, to rewind a little, then eating the elephant in smaller bites that would be something that uh, that I would like to see because I think we could make a huge and fast reduction in carbon and greenhouse gas emission by starting with the ships that are in a trade where you could actually reasonable ask them to go for battery, for ammonia, for something. They have the logistic, they have the fixed ports, they have the fixed lines to do these things. That could be uh, ships like island ferries, that could be tugboats, that could be the other smaller boats. And then next step could be you go to ferries, you go to row packs, you go to other uh, container liners, and you have a stricter requirement to their reduction. And at the end of the line, you are looking on the ships that is very depending on a huge fuel logistic network over the world. And that's obviously the tramping ships, uh, the bulk carriers and the tankers, 
who have no fixed ports where they can pick up their fuel for whatever that is in 10 years time. So if, if that was possible, I think you could achieve a fast reduction in a very reasonable way. Uh, so all the segments in our industry could uh, follow the pace. Yeah, thanks, Ralph. So a segment specific approach uh, needed. Uh, Marco, same question to you. Well, look, I tend to agree with what Ralph said. It's not just to pass the buck to somebody else. But I think when you are in a process this long and this ambitious, you have to try and get reduction and efficiency wherever you can get them. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a matter of picking the low-hanging fruits first. And then you move. I think this was the comment that we were discussing before with Stavros. Let's pick the low-hanging fruits and then we move up from there. I think anything we do today, it is a step in the right direction. So let's start doing something rather than just discussing and then never, never to implement something, you know. Uh, and then the second thing probably would ask for very clear legislation. The more is clear, the more is simple, it's understandable, and the more people will fall in line, you know, just uh, uh, very clear legislation. Yeah, yeah thanks, Marco. Okay, I, I noticed we're up against time. We've got one minute left. So just to sort of summarize all that we've, we've heard from the panelists today. Well, firstly, thanks to all the panelists for, for, for the views and the contribution there. Fantastic, fantastic discussion. So, um, well, I think I'm firstly hearing is that, you know, clearly there's a lot of interest uh, in this month's tomorrow's MEPC and particularly the outcomes on the decisions that relate around the, the EXI and the CII regulations. I think it's fair to say as well that there's still much uncertainty. Uh, we, we've all said that. Um, uncertainty on the operational implications, the commercial implications and, and, and uncertainty as you look across the sectors to sectors trades to trades, different operational profiles. And, and, and really what I'm hearing is that getting clarity about how these regulations may affect future decisions around vessels is, is, is absolutely paramount. That's the critical thing here that all the panels seem to seem to have, have stressed. Um, so that then we can make decisions about, uh, you know, whether it's our near-term operations, uh, it's our existing ships, or indeed it's about our future fleet investments that we that we need to make. So, you know, many, many in the maritime industry are, are focusing on delivering 2030 ambitions, uh, but it's also fair to say that this transition goes beyond shipping itself. Um, you know, we're affected by other participants that maybe now we're having to collaborate with or understand how, what, what they're doing along the supply chain in other industries to really uh, you know understand that that broader welterweight conversation um, but perhaps there is an opportunity here i'll leave you with this for the maritime industry to to really lead or or, or influence that conversation with, with with what i've heard today and what others are saying so with that nicholas i'll hand back to you and the the capital link team thank you very much thank well, you all I would like to do is uh, thank you, uh, Mark, uh, thank you, Harsh, Ralph, Tavros, Marco, and Arle. Tremendous discussion, very insightful and very dynamic. Uh, you know, I really appreciate the, the back and forth uh, of the discussion. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. -bye.